Well, most of us have uh, purchased big ticket items before in our lives. Maybe a college education, a car, a house, uh, what have you. And when, uh, let's take house for example, when you bought your house after closing, did your realtor and you continue to look for a house? No, I hope not. Uh, You signed and paid and you're done. No more realtor.com, no more showings, no more offers because you found what you're looking for and you're no longer in the market for a home. However, you might look again someday when you believe that something better is within your reach. Something is out there that potentially could be a, a better house. What prevents people from seeking the glory of God? No one seeks the infinite glory of God if there is something in their life that they like better. Think about that. The natural impulse for everyone is self-gratification or happiness. Oftentimes we seek self-gratification in the approval of others, other people just affirming us. And it starts as kids. Years ago, Christine and I uh, went down to the Washington, D.C. area in Haymarket, and we spent some time with a family that was planning a church down there. And uh, their youngest child at the time, uh, Benjamin, was four years old. And this little kid was awesome. I mean, I love this little kid. He was a bundle of energy just running around. And uh, he looked up at me, and he said, because his speech was a little, he's four, and he was like, you want to see something cool? And I was like, that's just rocking it. You want to see something cool? And I was like, you know, I, I don't know how I responded, but of course I want to see something cool. And uh, he, he, he ran around the room, like in a circle. That was it. And it was like, that's all you got? All right. Well, that is cool. That is cool, I guess. For a four-year-old. Um, he wanted me to think he was cool. Uh, it's in us to seek the approval of other people. And folks, it's dangerous because as we pursue our own glory in life, we at the same time escape from pursuing the glory of God. Jesus asked a question in verse 44 that is so penetrating, so revealing that it's worth contemplating. He asked, how can you believe when you receive glory from other, from one another, and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. A quick review before we close out this chapter 5. Jesus went to Jerusalem for a Jewish feast, and he showed up at the Bethesda public pool, where invalids were gathered. And Jesus told one invalid of 38 years to, to get up, pick up his bed in a walk, and he did. We found out that Jesus performed this miracle on the Sabbath and that the Jewish religious leaders were not very happy with that. In fact, they plotted to kill him for healing on the Sabbath and for making himself equal with God. From verse 19 to the end of the chapter, Jesus teaches these self-infatuated leaders astonishing truths about himself. He showed them multiple witnesses which attested to his authority. His own credible witness, along with John the Baptist, his own supernatural works, God the Father, the Scriptures, and even Mo- excuse me, Moses. He spoke with these men in order that they might be saved, showing the heart of our God and our Savior. In verses 19 through 36, Jesus laid out for them important doctrine. He taught them important things about himself. 
And in verse 37, Jesus began to apply it directly to these men, and his words toughen up a bit. Some hard words for some hard hearts. Let's see what he says. The word of God was not in those listening to Jesus. Let's take verses 37 and 38 together here. He says, His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you do not have His word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom He has sent. See how voice and form in verse 37 correspond with word and the one whom He has sent in verse 38. They were hearing the voice of God through Jesus, looking right at God in the flesh, and yet they listened without faith because the word of God was not in them. Their unbelief and rejection of the one whom God the Father sent confirmed that the truth of God had not moved into their hearts. The houses of their hearts were vacant of God's word. And these men were scholars. These men were experts in God's word. But there is a vast difference between studying and knowing about the word and having the word live in you. Facts don't translate to faith. We must be careful about this, Jerusalem. Careful not to equate knowing the Bible with knowing God. America's churches are filled with people who are ready to have another Bible study, another small group, another sermon, and yet they're not ready to sit and submit beneath the authority of Jesus Christ and out of love in their heart for Jesus, live out what the Bible communicates. The Christian life is about the word living in you, and these men were unoccupied. So why then did they study the scriptures so diligently as the passage tells us? They searched the scriptures as their means of eternal life. They searched the scriptures as their means of eternal life. Jesus said in verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. The Greek word for search means to make a thorough and careful investigation. So these astute scholars scrutinize word after word with meticulous detail, and then they miss the entire point. The scriptures bear witness about Jesus, and as I see it, these men assumed eternal life because of their knowledge and scholarship and righteousness, not because of their trust in the person of Jesus. For them, eternal life was gained by what they did by how they lived, not by grace through faith in what Jesus Christ did. Jesus was essentially saying to them, you guys have missed the entire point. All of your examination and effort and studying and writing and discussing is all in vain because you failed to notice that the scripture testifies to me. That's what he's saying It would be like reading the entire Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis and missing the fact that it's all about Aslan the lion, that he's the central figure. There is a big difference between studying the Bible to know facts and studying the Bible to know God. These Jewish leaders studied the Old Testament to receive glory, not to behold 
glory. Not to deepen their love for God. The motivation of their heart actually skewed the rationality of their minds. Now, what do I mean by that? The purpose of Bible study is to know and believe and enjoy God and all that He communicates. You don't read love letters mainly to scrutinize logic and grammar and syntax and to get an education on love itself. You pour over the words of a love letter to know the heart of the writer and their affection for you. You read love letters over and over again, carefully considering every nuance and tone as to delight in the one who wrote the letter and how the emotion and logic and grammar and syntax of the loving words work together to communicate something wonderful to you. That's what you want to see. The deepest study of God's word involves head and heart. If the words never penetrate deep into your heart, your mind will overlook things intellectually, incredible things. You'll just flat out miss them and won't be able to see them because your heart is not in it. Friends, the Bible is not the end in itself. It is the means to get you to Jesus. No one buys a new cell phone for the manual. The manual is given with the cell phone to get you to the phone to enjoy the phone and to understand how to use and benefit from its features. The purpose of meditating on Scripture is to find and enjoy Jesus Christ. The ultimate purpose of reading through your Bible in a year is not to tell someone that you've done it, not to cross something off of your I've always wanted to do this list. The ultimate purpose is to know Christ more deeply. One quote I found summarized this really, really well. The study of the Bible ought to result in genuine faith in Jesus, followed by obedient action and transformed lives, not merely acquisition of Bible knowledge. Isn't that good? We're not trying to cram our minds full of useless facts. We mine the great depths of Scripture to know and enjoy God. Studying the Bible and your joy are intimately connected. Get God, not simply an education. Get God, not simply an education. There's something else important to understand from verse 39. Jesus has yet another credible witness, the Old Testament. And you know, as difficult as the Old Testament can be sometimes to get through and to read and to understand, the Old Testament is a powerful prelude to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the clarifying lens through which we gaze at the beauty of the Old Testament. Now, there is strong evidence for that in Scripture. When Philip found Nathanael in John 1.45, he said, we have found him. We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Luke tells us, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus said later in Luke 24, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Luke continues, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written 
that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. What is the ultimate purpose of Exodus? Jesus. What is the ultimate purpose of Leviticus? Jesus and the minor prophets and the major prophets and the historical writings and the Psalms are all mainly pointing to the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. And for these Jewish men, the study of the Old Testament was their God, not their means to see and savor God. So they rejected Jesus. They didn't want to come to Jesus and live. They didn't want to do it. Verse 40 is, a, is critical to the chapter. When Jesus healed the invalid, it was insufficient evidence to cause these men to believe. Evidence never gives faith. God does. In verse 40, Jesus says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now, the word refuse is important. It's the Greek word uh, thalete, which means to will something based on desire. You will to do something based on a desire that you have. You make choices because you want to. They didn't want to come to have life in Jesus. People don't believe in Christ because they don't want to. They don't want to trust him. That's why they don't. They want sin and death more than they want God. That's it. Now, many people intellectualize it. Look at science. Look at reason. Look at this or that. And they try to deflect the issue off of themselves and the fact that they just don't want to. That's the crux of the matter. It's all an intellectual smokescreen for I don't want to believe in Christ because I want my sin more than Christ. And this is Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's like, I'm not going to believe. I'm going to bury the truth because I want to live in my sin. That's what's happening in John 5. Same basic thing in 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12. The verses refer to people who are perishing, who refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had Pleasure in unrighteousness. Pleasure in unrighteousness. What did they do instead of believing the truth? They took pleasure in their unrighteousness. They enjoyed their sin more than Jesus. Now, let's be honest. Sin does bring some pleasure, but along with it, um, along with the sweet taste of sin comes the bitter aftertaste and poison of misery and death. These men don't want to come to Jesus and live because they enjoyed the sweet taste of self-righteousness and preferred to die clinging to their idolatrous pleasures. Life is yours if you come to Christ. Come. Come and really live. Come to a superior pleasure. Sin is a fleeting pleasure. Sin is an incomplete pleasure. Sin is a pleasure that will fail you, but Christ is a lasting pleasure. So come to him and enjoy forever. God's grace will help you want to come. 
like little spoiled kids, these Jews didn't want to come. I don't want to do it. And there's something pleasurable deep within their hearts that they were unwilling to let go of. What was it? Look at verse 41. I do not receive glory from people, Jesus says. Jesus is saying something about himself, and he's also implying something about them in that very simple statement. First, Jesus is saying that he has no need to receive glory from people. Jesus has no need for earthly accolades and acceptance, no need for glory that comes from people. His father glorifies him, and as John told us earlier in his gospel, Jesus has glory inherent to his nature and character, namely the fullness of grace and truth. So if we ask, how can Jesus be so confident, so content as to not need the glory of other people? He does not receive glory from people because he is the fullness of, of the glory of God. He needs nothing outside of his relationship with God to affirm him. Second, in verse 41, Jesus is implying that these Jewish leaders did receive their glory from people. And this is an indictment against them. Verse 44 is as well. They craved and sought glory from other people because they desired their own glory above the glory of God. Those listening to Jesus did not seek the glory that comes from the only God. They just didn't search for it. That wasn't their main objective, to find the glory of God. They liked their own glory better. So they just parked there. Let's try to understand why they didn't seek the glory of God. Jesus said in verse 42, But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Wow. That's like telling a room of pastors and theologians, you're not saved. People don't usually do that. Jesus did. You don't have the love of God in you, guys. You study all your scriptures. You do all this righteous stuff. People put you up on a pedestal because you're the religious elitists of the day. You don't even have the love of God in you. You don't know God. God hasn't poured his love into you. You're missing the critical ingredient to faithfulness to God. You don't have his love in you. Now, you can take Jesus to mean two things here, and I think both are true of these men. One, God had not poured his love into these men, and two, they do not love God because God has not poured his love into them. If the love of God is not in you, you are not born again. The gospel hasn't changed you. The Holy Spirit is not in you, and you don't uh, seek the glory of God. This is why they could see an invalid healed in front of them. They could see him walking again, and he had been an invalid for 38 years, and yet focus most on breaking of the Sabbath and ignore the miracle that just happened. That's how that happens, because you don't have the love of God in you. These are smart guys. These are the intelligent, but they didn't know God. They weren't loving people. Now, I know it's a big statement to say that God hasn't poured his love into certain people, and they therefore don't have his love in them and aren't loving people. That's a really big statement. And so I, I want you to see it in the scriptures for yourself. I want you to look at these references and, and come to, to this by you seeing it. So let's stay with John and then we'll look at Paul. 
In John's first letter, 1 John 4, 7, he writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Followers of Jesus are able to love each other because love is from God. If someone genuinely loves, I mean, deep down, it's like a true, deep, heartfelt, God-focused love for other people. If people truly have that, they have been born of God and they know God. Love comes from God and love follows being born of God. True love in the deepest sense is an overflow of love, of the love of God which he has poured into our heart. John later said in 1 John 4, in this is love. So watch, watch what this refers to. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Love starts with God, not with us. In verse 19, John wrote, we love because he first loved us. God moves in us, and then we follow suit. We follow his lead. Well, that's John. What does Paul say? Romans 5, 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who, he is, who has been given to us. God dumps his love into our heart. And he does so through the Holy Spirit. No Holy Spirit? No love. The Jews of John 5 were dead in their sin. The love of God was not in them. If the love of God had been poured into their hearts, it would have controlled their lives. You live by the love of God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, that's Jesus. Therefore, all have died, that's us. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christ's love is poured into our lives, into our hearts first. That's the initiation then it controls us and we no longer live for us. We put us to death and we live unto Christ who was raised for us, who died and was raised for us. Life instantly becomes about Jesus Christ. But these hostile Jews did not have the love of God within them, therefore it did not control them. They continued to live for themselves, which is completely reasonable to believe. If someone doesn't have the love of Christ in them, who are they going to live for? Themselves. Absolutely. That's where we'd all be without the grace and love of God poured into our lives. We will be selfish people, thinking only of ourselves. That's what unbelievers, that's what the flesh does without the regenerating power and love of God being poured into our lives. That's par for the course for all of us without God's love being poured into us. They didn't love God but they sought their own glory in themselves. In verse 43, Jesus told them, I have come in my Father's name. With the authority of heaven he came. With God's backing, Jesus came. And he says, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. So Jesus came with divine commission from God 
and yet they didn't receive him. Yet Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, wrote about multiple false prophets who claimed to be Christ and to seize that position for themselves. And the Jews received some of them for their own selfish purposes. Can you smell the conspiracy here? He, heavenly authority, uh-uh. This guy comes in his own name, seems good enough for us. Let's get behind him because he'll serve our purposes. That's all about them. It's just, it's just a big conspiracy. Jesus kept going. He keeps pressing. Verse 44, how can you believe, guys? How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? It's not possible to believe and follow Jesus when the primary interest of your life is to receive glory from other people. They could not believe because their desire to receive glory overshadowed their desire to behold glory. They wanted glory for themselves. They were glory seekers more than they wanted to experience the glory that came from the God of the universe. The mob mentality, if you just slow up and think about the mob mentality, it's dangerous because it's easy to get caught up in the hype and to lose objectivity when others affirm you, when others are with you, when they go along with you and you think everything is good because you've got a crowd with you. Just look at college fraternities or the party scene. This is exactly what happens. If enough people affirm you or agree with you, it's easy to miss the truth and justify yourself because you've got companions, all right? In fact, don't we often, if we're honest with ourselves, don't we often search for the people who agree with us and affirm us just in order to justify what we're doing, which we know is not right? So we'll just crowd around people who do the same thing we do and we get caught up in the hype. Easy to do, very easy to do. For these Jews, the recognition and affirmation of their cronies blockaded them from humbly receiving the truth, reality, what really was. Coming to Christ for these men would have meant the end of their religious superiority. The end of their like, I'm on top now. The end of their pride the glory they received from each other prevented them from experiencing the much greater glory of God. And what a horrible exchange for them. The infinite glory of God or the glory for me. And they take the glory for me and miss out on this fantastic reality of the glory of God. What a horrible exchange. That's to say, I've got a million dollars and need to exchange it, million dollars in the dollar and I want it in the yen or whatever. And, and we, one yen for a million dollars. Great. Take it. That's a horrible exchange rate. These guys, they just couldn't see it. Isn't this why so many famous people are so unfulfilled even when they have millions of devoted fans? Self-glorification fails. It fails. It's idolatry. Now, we like when people honor us. We like when people make a, a big deal about us. And, and we like it so much that if we don't watch it, it can control our lives. Isn't that true? It actually adjusts how we live and how we plan just so we can earn approval. This isn't in the notes. This one's for free. But if you go to Facebook, I have 
folks, as true as I'm standing here, I have thought, I wonder how many are going to like this. I wonder how many I can get to look at my quote and to say, this guy is brilliant. Like, 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 yes, thousands of likes for me. Focus on me. Focus on what great wisdom I have to give you, my little minions. You know, this is pathetic. This is flat out pathetic. And we do this, but self-glorification fails. At the end of the day, you say, I'm not filled. This feels horrible because I'm not the center of the universe. This is idolatry. We worship ourselves. We cannot pursue our glory and God's glory at the same time. Those two pursuits are mutually exclusive. They head in different directions. It's all about delighting in the glory of Jesus. It's all about delighting in the glory of Jesus. Verse 45 through 47, Jesus said, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Oh, no. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, I said last week that the Jews revered Moses, and they did. He was a national and religious hero, even a prolific writer. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Psalm 90. I've heard that Jewish leaders committed each book of Moses to memory. That's craziness. These guys were super intelligent and committed. In John 9, 28, Jewish leaders called themselves, I think this is really interesting, disciples of Moses. Not disciples of God. We follow Moses. They probably had Moses posters and lunchboxes and bobbleheads and action figures. I don't know, but... Here in verse 45, Jesus said that their hope, they set their hope on Moses and believed him. They were really serious about Moses. Little did they know, Moses was their prosecuting attorney. His writings were their indictment. They thought they believed Moses, but they rejected Jesus And that proved that they really didn't believe Moses. Moses wrote about Jesus. Let that sink in. Moses wrote about Jesus. That's prophecy. The point of Genesis through Deuteronomy was and is Jesus. And when you read the Old Testament, be on the lookout for Jesus. Always ask the question, what does this have to do with Jesus? And study it hard. He is in there. He's, in, he's everywhere in the Old Testament. Just look for him. Study deeply. And so, you can see why Jesus said, if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You reject the one, you reject the other. Laura Hillenbrand is a published author. She writes essays, uh, but only uh, wrote two books, uh, both on the New York Times bestseller list. That's just amazing. The first was Seabiscuit, which some of you may be familiar with, Uh, which spent 42 weeks at number one and was made into a movie eventually, which I thought was a a pretty good movie. The second book was Unbroken, a thrilling account of the life of Louis Zamperini, a World War II veteran and Olympic athlete. And Unbroken is being made by Angelina Jolie into a movie, so it's coming out before too long. Unbroken has spent more than 125 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Only five other nonfiction books ever have been on the list longer than hers. 
Now, if you read the fascinating account of Louis Zamperini, Louis Zamperini and you finish impressed by Laura Hillenbrand's writing, that would be right and good. She is an awesome writer. I mean, each page is like gripping. I was like, this is amazing. I can't believe that. Excellent writer. Excellent. She deserves to be commended for this work. It should be on the New York Times bestseller list. However, if you finish Unbroken without a greater appreciation, a deeper appreciation for the incredible life of Louis Zamperini, I don't think you would have read the book correctly. I think you would have missed the point of Laura Hillenbrand and her writing. As the writer, Laura is unearthing the incredible life and story of Louis Zamperini. The biography is about him. The attention is going to him. Of course, Laura Hillenbrand is an excellent writer, but she serves us by showing us Louis. We honor Laura Hillenbrand when we read her book and enjoy the life and story of Louis Zamperini. The literature of Moses points beyond itself to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. Don't ever miss the point of our scriptures. John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The Jews had set their hope on Moses who gave the law. And we need the law, but the law can't save us. It's incomplete. The law meant so much to these Jews, it was so important to them that they missed the grace and truth which is greater than the law. I want to do it on my own. I want to exert effort to make this God thing work instead of I want to receive because I can't make it work. I just want God's grace. I want to receive the truth from him. I want him to be the power in me because I know what trying harder does. It doesn't work. It's tiring. It's discouraging. It's condemning. That's what the law does when you remain at the law, but when you get through that to the grace and tr- truth of Jesus Christ, freedom comes. Your life is transformed in Him. It's no longer about what you do, it's about what He has done. The law meant so much, they just missed it. Grace and truth in Jesus, not law. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. To stop at Moses is a fatal mistake. You must continue through Moses to get to the greater glory, grace, and truth in Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. The Old Testament is about Jesus. The New Testament is about Jesus. Creation is about Jesus. Life is about Jesus. Eternal life is about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. A person And if you agree with all that, if you're like, yes, 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 of course it's all about Jesus, then you also agree that it's not about you. It's not about you. You are not the center of the universe. You are not the grand purpose of why all things were made. You are not that great. Jesus is great, and because he is great, and he made you in the image of God, you bear his mark, and you are great, in that you are an image bearer of God. It's all about Jesus. 
And if you believe that, then to pursue your own glory above God's glory would be to miss the point of you. You were made to experience the glory of God above everything else. It is why you are you. How can you believe in Christ? How can you live for him if your life revolves around the glory others give you? You can't. You have to let you go. You have to die when you come to Christ and live in him. Your flesh dies. The old you dies and the new you lives unto Jesus Christ. This is what it is to be a Christian, folks. One of my heroes said, heaven won't be a hall of mirrors. Our problem with our minds is that they don't worship. They don't delight in God. They are self-worshiping, not God-worshiping. We need a breakthrough of grace. That's all there is. We need a breakthrough of grace to transform us, to give us a greater vision, a bigger vision than to live to promote ourselves. Our greater vision is to delight in the glory of God above all else so we might believe that the glory of God is greater. We have to believe that the glory of God is greater because if it is, it's worth giving your life to, understanding and getting to that glory. Let's pray. What fantastic truths you have given us today in your word. It's exciting to be together with other Christians, God, to just sit under the authority of your word, of what you say. We want to understand, we want to know, we want to live for you, we want to worship you, we want to have our greatest pleasure in you. We want to be happy. All of us want to be happy. And we have to believe that the greatest, greatest path to that happiness is through Jesus Christ. That at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That you will not uh, disappoint us in the end, God. So I pray with my heart, God, by the Holy Spirit's power that you impact us to live for your glory above everything else in our lives. I pray for us when we get consumed with our glory, when we want the fame and the credit and the recognition for us. And I pray, God, that that spirit dies in us and that we would have such an intense craving to live in a way that makes the glory of God shine, that we would live in a way that, that exalts Christ And puts him up because he is God and he is glorious and he is great and he is infinite and he is majestic and he is beautiful and he is everything to us. And so God, I'm just praying by your grace that you work in this church to lead people to be infatuated and taken and awestruck by the glory of God and that they would forget themselves. And forget what the world says because it's just lies. The greatest thing in the whole universe in all of existence to experience is the glory of the Almighty God. Thank you for revealing that to us in your word. Thank you for revealing that to us in your son Jesus. In his precious name we pray, amen.